section six of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lilly craik chapter one part six original english commonly called saxon or anglo-saxon the english which the angles and saxons brought over with them from the continent when they came and took possession of the greater part of south britain in the fifth and sixth centuries differed from the english that we now speak and write in two important respects it was an unmixed language and it was what is called a synthetic in contradistinction to an analytic language its vocables were all of one stock or lineage and it expressed the relations of nouns and verbs not by separate words called auxiliaries and particles but by terminational or other modifications that is by proper conjugation and declension as our present english still does when it says i loved instead of i did love or the king's throne instead of the throne of the king these two characteristics are what constitute it a distinct form or stage of the language its synthetic or generally inflected grammatical structure and its homogeneous vocabulary as a subject of philological study the importance of this earliest known form of the english language cannot be overestimated and much of what we possess written in it is also of great value for the matter but the essential element of a literature is not matter but manner here too as in everything else the soul of the artistic is form beauty of form now of that what has come down to us written in this primitive english is at least for us of the present day holy or all but wholly destitute there is much writing in forms of human speech now extinct or no longer in oral use which is still intelligible to us in a certain sort but in a certain sort only it speaks to us as anything that is dead can speak to us and no otherwise we can decipher it rather than read it we make it out as it were merely by the touch getting some such notion of it as a blind man might get of a piece of sculpture by passing his hand over it this for instance to take an extreme case is the position in which we stand in reference to the hieroglyphic inscriptions on the ancient monuments of egypt they can be read as the multiplication table can be read but that is all there may be nothing more in them than there is in the multiplication table but if there were we could not get at it m champollion indeed in his enthusiasm saw a vision of an amatory or bacchanalian song laughing under the venerable veil of one of them but it is plain that this must have been an illusion a mummy from one of the neighbouring tombs embalmed some three or four thousand years ago might almost as soon be expected to give forth a living voice even the ancient assyrian inscriptions which are in alphabetical characters 
will certainly never be made to render up to us more than the dead matters of fact that may be wrapped up in them if there be any grace in the manner in which the facts are related any beauty of style in the narrative it has perished irretrievably but this is what also appears to happen in a greater or less degree in the case even of a language the vocabulary of which we have completely in our possession and which we are therefore quite able to interpret so far as regards the substance of anything written in it whenever it has for some time for a single generation it may be ceased both to be spoken and to be written something is thus lost which seems to be irrecoverable the two great classic tongues it is to be observed the old greek and latin although they have both long passed out of popular use have always continued to be not only studied and read by all cultivated minds throughout europe but to be also extensively employed by the learned at least in writing and this has proved enough to maintain the modern world in what may be called a living acquaintance with them such an acquaintance as we have with a person we have conversed with or a place where we have actually been as distinguished from our dimmer conception of persons and places known to us only by description the ancient classic literature charms us as well as informs us it addresses itself to the imagination and to our sense of the beautiful as well as to the understanding it has shape and colour and voice for us as well as mere substance every word and every collocation of words carries with it a peculiar meaning or effect which is still appreciated the whole in short is felt and enjoyed not simply interpreted but a language which has passed from what we may call its natural condition of true and full vitality as a national speech cannot apparently be thus far preserved with something of the pulse of life still beating in it merely by such a knowledge of it being kept up as enables us to read and translate it still less can a language the very reading of which has been for a time suspended and consequently all knowledge whatever of it forgotten ever be restored to even the appearance of life it has become a fossil and cannot be resuscitated but only dug up a thousand facts warrant us in saying that languages and even words are subject to decay and dissolution as well as the human beings of whose combined mental and physical organizations they are the mysterious product and that once really dead nothing can reanimate their dust or reclothe their dry bones with flesh the original form of the english language is in this state it is intelligible but that is all what is written in it can in a certain sense be read but not so as to bring out from the most elaborate compositions in it any artistic element except of the most dubious and unsatisfactory kind either such an element is not present in any considerable degree or the language is not now intimately enough known for any one to be able to detect it if it is not literally dumb its voice has for us of the present day entirely lost its music even of the system of measure and arrangement 
according to which it is ordinarily disposed for the purposes of poetry we have no proper apprehension or feeling certain mechanical principles or rules may have been discovered in obedience to which the versification appears to be constructed but the verse as verse remains not the less for our ears and hearts wholly voiceless when it can be distinguished from prose at all it is only by certain marks or characteristics which may indeed be perceived by the eye or counted on the fingers but which have no expression that excites in us any mental emotion it is little better than if the composition merely had the words this is verse written over it or under it in respect of everything else appertaining to the soul of the language our understanding of it is about equally imperfect the consequence is that although it can be translated it cannot be written the late mr conybeare indeed has left us a few specimens of verse in it of his own composition but his attempts are of the slightest character and unadventurous as they are nobody can undertake to say except as to palpable points of right or wrong in grammar whether they are well or ill done the language though so far in our hands as to admit of being analyzed in grammars and packed up in dictionaries is not recoverable in such a degree as to make it possible to pronounce with certainty whether anything written in it is artistically good or bad as for learning to speak it that is a thing as little dreamt of as learning to speak the language of swift's winhams when the study of this original form of the national speech was revived in england in the middle of the sixteenth century it had been for well nigh four hundred years not only what is commonly called a dead language but a buried and an utterly forgotten one it may be questioned if at least for three preceding centuries any one had been able to read it it was first recurred to as a theological weapon much in the same manner as the reformers generally were drawn to the study of the greek language in maintaining the accordance of their doctrines with those of the new testament and of the first ages of christianity the english reformers turned to the oldest writings in the vernacular tongue for evidence of the comparatively unromanized condition of the early english church in the next age history and law began to receive illustration from the same source it was not till a considerably later date that the recovered language came to be studied with much of a special view to its literary and philological interest and it is only within the present century that it has either attracted any attention in other countries or been investigated on what are now held to be sound principles the specially theological period of its cultivation may be regarded as extending over the latter half of the sixteenth century the legal and historical period over the whole of the seventeenth the philological of the old school over the whole of the eighteenth and the philological of the modern school over the nineteenth so far as it has gone if the english language as it was written a thousand years ago had been left to itself and no other action from without had interfered with that of its spontaneous growth or inherent principles of change and development it might not have remained so stationary 
as some more highly cultivated languages have done throughout an equal space of time but its form in the nineteenth century would in all probability have been only a comparatively slight modification of what it was in the ninth it would have been essentially the same language as the case stands the english of the ninth century is one language and the english of the nineteenth century another they differ at least as much as the italian differs from the latin or as english differs from german the most familiar acquaintance with the one leaves the other unintelligible so much is this so that it has long been customary to distinguish them by different names and to call the original form of the national speech saxon or anglo-saxon as if it were not english at all if the notion be that the dialect in which most of the ancient english that has come down to us is written is that which was in use among the specially saxon part of the population that would have been better indicated by calling it not anglo-saxon but saxon english but even such a designation would be inapplicable to those specimens of the language in which there is unquestionably nothing whatever that is specially saxon and which recent investigations have shown to be not inconsiderable in amount as well as of high philological importance and it would also leave the limitation of the name english to the more modern form of the language without any warrant in the facts of the case objectionable however as may be the common nomenclature it is still indisputable that we have here for all practical purposes not one language but two languages the one may have grown out of the other and no doubt has done so at least in part or in the main but in part also the modern language is of quite a distinct stock from the ancient of english literature therefore and the english language commonly so called the language and literature of the angles and saxons before the twelfth century make no proper part the history of the latter can only with propriety be glanced at as introductory to that of the former the mass of writing that has been preserved in this earlier english is very considerable but only a small portion of it can be regarded as coming under the head of literature even of what has been printed much and that not the least interesting and valuable part has no claim to that title for example the numerous mere documents that are given by hicks in his most learned thesaurus and those that compose the six volumes of mr kemble's codex diplomaticus most of what is of much value or curiosity in the language has now probably been committed to the press much of it by scholars still living or only recently deceased both in our own and other countries the names of coney bear ingram sharon turner price kemble garnett miss gurney thorpe guest bosworth fox goodwin langley norman offer cardale vernon barnes wright barrow stevenson thorkelin rask jacob grimm leo schmidt etmuller lappenberg k w bowderweck to mention no others may illustrate the wide diffusion of the interest that in our day has been and still continues to be taken in this field of study the epic of beowulf is the most considerable poetical composition of which this primitive english literature has to boast it exists only in a single manuscript of the tenth century 
one of those in the cottonian collection from which it was first published with a latin translation at copenhagen in eighteen sixteen by dr g j thorkland whose transcript has been made so early as in seventeen eighty six a far superior text however accompanied by an english translation notes and a glossary was afterwards produced by mr kemble in two volumes the first published in eighteen thirty three and again in eighteen thirty five the second in eighteen thirty seven copious extracts from beowulf had previously been given by mr sharon turner in his history of the anglo-saxons eighteen o three and the english reader will find a complete analysis of the poem with versions of many passages in blank verse in professor coney bear's illustrations of anglo-saxon poetry published in eighteen twenty six by his brother the rev w d coney bear there is likewise an english translation of the whole in rhyme by professor a diedrich bockerbarth published in eighteen forty nine the only other long work in verse that has been preserved is what is sometimes described as a metrical version of scripture history by a poet of the name of cadman recorded by bede as having lived in the seventh century but which is in fact a collection of separate scriptural narratives mostly paraphrased from the book of genesis possibly by various writers and certainly of much later date it was first published from the only known manuscript which is of the tenth century and is now in the bodleian library by the learned francis junius at amsterdam in sixteen fifty five but a much more commodious and in every way superior edition with an english translation was brought out at london in eighteen thirty two under the auspices of the society of antiquaries by mr thorpe another by k w bowderweck in two volumes octavo was published at elberfeld in eighteen forty seven and eighteen forty eight some remarkable coincidences have often been noticed between cadman's treatment of his first subject that of the fall and the manner in which it is treated by milton who may very possibly it has been thought have looked into his predecessor's performance unless we should rather suppose that a common ancient source may have supplied some hints to both there is also another religious poem on the subject of judith preserved in the same cottonian volume with beowulf but it is only a fragment it was first published by edward thwaites in a volume entitled heptatuchus containing the five books of moses and other portions of scripture oxford sixteen ninety nine and it is reprinted in thorpe's analecta anglo saxonica eighteen thirty four and again in eighteen forty six other fragmentary or short pieces are a song attributed to cadman sometimes styled the elder cadman in king alfred's translation of bede which if genuine must be of the latter part of the seventh century and would be the oldest specimen of the language that has been preserved a small portion of a warlike chant first printed by hicks grammatica anglo-saxonica one ninety two and styled by kemble who has reproduced it in his edition of beowulf the battle of finsburgh the traveller's song first printed by coney bear several compositions interspersed in the historical record called the chronicle of which the most famous is that on the victory of king ethelstan over the scots and danes at a place called brunenburg in nine thirty eight a considerable portion of a poem on the battle of malden fought in nine ninety three originally printed from one of the cotton manuscripts in his johannes glastoniensis 
chronicon seventeen twenty six by herne who however mistook it for prose and since reproduced both by coney bear and by thorpe in the analecta and others in the two collections known as the exeter and the vercelli manuscripts both which have now been edited in full the former which is of the eleventh century by thorpe in eighteen forty two the latter having however been previously printed in an appendix to the record commission edition of rymer's federa by kemble for the eelfric society in eighteen forty three one romance in prose has been discovered on the mediaeval story of apollonius of tyre the same on which the play of pericles attributed to shakespeare is founded of this also an edition by mr thorpe with a literal translation appeared in eighteen thirty four of the other prose remains the most important are the fragments of the laws among which are some of those of ethelbert king of kent who reigned in the latter part of the sixth and the early part of the seventh century but evidently reduced to the language of a later age the chronicle the earlier portion of which is chiefly a compilation from the historia ecclesiastica of bede but which may be regarded as a contemporary register of public events from perhaps about the middle of the tenth century and which terminates at the close of the reign of stephen in eleven fifty four the various works of king alfred which however are all in the main only translations from the latin though occasionally interspersed with original matter his pastoral of pope gregory his beotheus de consolatione philosophiae with the verse and some of the copies metrically paraphrased and expanded his english ecclesiastical history of bede and his general history of Arosius, and the various theological grammatical and other writings of alfric or eelfric generally supposed to have been the individual of the same name who was archbishop of canterbury from nine ninety five to one thousand six there are also translations of the pentateuch the psalms the gospels and other parts of scripture and numerous lives of saints besides some treatises on medicine and botany and a great many wills charters and other legal instruments portions of the laws were given in william lambard's archaeonomia quarto fifteen sixty eight and folio sixteen forty three by hicks in his dissertatio epistolaris in the Thesaurus and in hearn's textus rofensis oxford seventeen twenty and there are complete collections by wilkins seventeen twenty one by dr reinhold schmidt leipzig eighteen thirty two and by thorpe for the record commission eighteen forty of the chronicle of which there are many manuscripts more or less perfect a portion was appended by wellock to his beads historia ecclesiastica with alfred's translation cambridge sixteen forty three the earliest edition of the whole was that of bishop gibson with a latin translation oxford sixteen ninety two and there have since appeared that of the rev j ingram london eighteen twenty three and that by the late richard price esq contained in the monumenta historica britannica eighteen forty eight coming down however only to the norman conquest both with translations into english an english manuscript translation by the late richard gough esq is preserved with the rest of his collection in the bodleian library and another printed but not published by the late miss gurney of keswick norfolk in eighteen nineteen has been made the basis of that edited by dr giles along with bede's ecclesiastical history in one of the volumes of bond's antiquarian library eighteen forty nine the chronicle in part translated by mr stevenson is contained in the first part of the second volume of the church historians of england eighteen fifty three 
many portions of it are also given in the original in a volume entitled ancient history english and french exemplified in a regular dissection of the saxon chronicle octavo london eighteen thirty of the translations from the latin attributed to alfred the great the preface to the pastoral of pope gregory was first printed with a latin translation by archbishop parker along with his edition of asser's latin life of alfred folio london fifteen seventy four from this it was transferred to a scarce octavo volume published at leyden in fifteen ninety seven with the title of de literis et lingua geteram siwe gotherum by a writer calling himself bonaventura Balcanius brugensis meaning it has been conjectured schmidt or desmet of bruges and who has been asserted to have really been antony marion secretary of cardinal granville it is also given along with his reprint of Asser by camden in his collection published at frankfurt in sixteen o three and in wise's Asser octavo oxford seventeen twenty two and mr wright has inserted it with an english translation in his biographia britannica literaria eighteen forty two volume one pages three ninety seven to four hundred the version of boethius de consolatione philosophiae was first edited by christopher rawlinson octavo oxford sixteen ninety eight and there are modern editions of the prose with an english translation and notes by mr j s cardale octavo london eighteen twenty nine and of the verse alfred's claim to which however is very doubtful also with an english translation and notes by the rev samuel fox octavo london eighteen thirty five alfred's orosius was first edited with an english translation from the anglo-saxon by the honourable danes barrington in seventeen seventy three and it has been reproduced with a new translation by mr thorpe in a very convenient form along with dr r Pauly's life of alfred in one of the volumes of bond's antiquarian library eighteen fifty three alfred's bead was published in folio at cambridge first by welluck in sixteen forty three and again by dr john smith with large and learned annotations in seventeen twenty two we may mention that a collection professing to contain the whole works of king alfred the great with preliminary essays illustrative of the history arts and manners of the ninth century and calling itself the jubilee edition was produced at london by the alfred committee in two volumes commonly bound in three in eighteen fifty two it consists however only of translations into modern english the various treatises passing under the name of alfric eelfric or elfric have recently engaged much attention and the name has been assumed by a society established some years ago for the publication of literary remains in early english he is known by the titles of the grammarian and the abbot and the writings attributed to him which are very numerous are mostly theological and grammatical the eelfric society has published a collection of his homilies edited with a translation by mr thorpe in two volumes octavo eighteen fifty four and a latin grammar compiled by him in his native language first published by sumner in his dictionarium saxonico latino anglicum oxford sixteen fifty nine has been reprinted in part from a different manuscript at the expense of sir thomas phillips for further information respecting eelfric and his works the reader is referred to the account of him given by mr wright in the first volume of the biographia britannica literaria pages four eighty to four ninety four his homilies mr wright observes are written in very easy anglo-saxon and form on that account the best book for the student who is beginning to study the language End of section six